Well, good morning. Uh, we're glad you guys are here this morning, and especially to you parents. Let me uh, welcome you all. We are uh, stoked that you guys are with us on this Parents Weekend Sunday. Um, hopefully, you guys have had a great chance, a great time this weekend with your students. Um, kind of be honest with you guys, my freshman year, my parents came in for Parents Weekend and kind of wanted to do away with a myth that maybe you parents have had this uh, weekend. I don't know. Maybe it was just my parents, uh, or maybe it was just my parents and I that had trust and communication issues as a freshman in college. But uh, my parents came to uh, Parents Weekend at A&M my freshman year, and they had the assumption that this weekend that you would have the chance to walk into classrooms and meet professors. Um, I had to assure them all weekend long that my professors were not waiting in their classrooms to meet my parents. And so my parents never believed me. But if you have had that assumption this weekend, let me kind of clarify that professors are not waiting for you guys. After y'all paid for tuition, they were kind of done. So, um, But we are glad you guys are here. Um, I hope you guys have had a great weekend. Uh, and honestly, I kind of explain to you guys, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here. And uh, let me just kind of express to y'all, uh, it, it is our great privilege um, and our great honor to get to shepherd your students for the four years or more that they may be in college. Uh, it is a joy for us. Um, and if you've never been to Grace before, I'll kind of give you a little picture of our church. We are a university family church, meaning uh, on a given Sunday morning, we have probably 50% of those that are here on a Sunday morning are college students, 50% are families. Uh, our mission statement as a church is to raise up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. And so guess what? Who's the next generation? We would say that the next generation of leaders are, are the students that are sitting here with us. And so our whole vision, our whole mission as a church is really all about college ministry. And so for us, it's not just a responsibility and privilege, but it's also a huge passion for us to get to shepherd your students and get to build into them for the time that they're here before they leave us and we get the chance to send them off. And so thank you guys for letting us shepherd your students. Thanks for letting us build into them. It is a huge joy and privilege for us. I've been uh, here for about three years uh, and you are right now at our Southwood campus. Uh, We are also a multi-site campus, meaning we are one church at two locations. This is Southwood. We opened this place up about two years ago with the hope and the desire to grow, but grow smaller. And so uh, we also have an Anderson campus that uh, is kind of the beginning campus, and this Southwood one has been added in addition for the desire just to, not just to grow, but to gr- create a, a new environment for new leaders to arise, to create a new environment where people uh, would not be so, so part of such a huge thing. And so Southwood is a little bit of a sm- uh, smaller feel. Uh, it's a little bit more community-based, and, and so I hope you guys kind of have a sense from us of our joy to have you guys here, uh, a joy to have you guys a part of this time. There's also someone else I want to introduce you guys to. Uh, we have a special visitor also, in addition to you parents this morning, uh, a redheaded visitor. Uh, Sarah Malone, if you want to stand up. Uh, come on, Sarah, it's okay. Uh, Sarah Malone is our director of college women's uh, ministry stuff, and so she shepherds, she is responsible for all college women-related ministries, activities, and events. And so for you college girls, she's just a great resource to know. I wanted you guys to see her. Sarah and I together kind of shepherd and lead um, all of our college small groups uh, between both of our sites. And so in many ways, Sarah is just a great uh, partner in ministry, a, a great uh, person to walk with the Lord with. And for you girls, I just wanted you guys to see her and know her, but she's just a great resource to, that you can contact. Typically, every Sunday, she's at uh, Anderson. And so I wanted you guys this morning just to get to see her. And so for you parents, uh, as you guys come in this morning and we throw up a topic like, is God Republican or Democrat? Many of y'all may be wondering, what in the world is going on? And why is my child here, right? Um, this semester, we've been going uh, through a series called Tough, Difficult Questions. And so we've been wrestling with some of the most controversial, yes, but challenging issues in our uh, day and time. And so we kind of started off this semester philosophically talking about, does absolute truth exist? We moved from there and talked about, is the Bible reliable? And then we've hit different sociological and moral issues from abortion to homosexuality. And this morning, we're going to talk about politics. So 
uh, every semester, every Sunday this semester, I thought this isn't a typical Sunday morning. Um, and let me assure you, this is not a typical Sunday morning either. We don't normally talk about politics, but we're going to come at it this morning with a belief in the idea that being this, that our faith isn't just about how we live on a Sunday morning in a church building. But our faith is meant to impact every arena of our life, and not just the, the way that we would study, not just the way that we would work in a career one day, but even in our civic life, that in a sense our faith should impact every arena of our life. And so typically the idea and the issue of politics is not something we would talk about on a Sunday morning. So let's pray, and we'll kind of jump in after that, all right? Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is such a great privilege for us to come before you in a place so that we can worship you freely, that we can worship you in wisdom and in truth, and that, uh, that we can come in this kind of place and, and sing freely, Lord. We do give you thanks for the freedoms that we have in this country, um, the freedoms to worship and to worship you as you would see fit, Lord. And Father, I pray this morning as we would open your word, as we would tackle a topic that we don't normally talk about, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us clarity. Uh, that you would allow us not to be controversial, but you would allow us to be biblical. Um, that you would allow us to think and to wrestle with an issue and to think through it in a biblical manner. And that you would begin to shape and make our faith more fully orbed. Father, I pray this morning for myself that you would give me clarity as I speak. And that your hand would be upon our time this morning, Lord. And all that we would do and say, Lord. pray that your spirit would come and open our eyes and soften our hearts. And that you would give us just hearts that are responsive to you this morning, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, if I were to ask you guys a question this morning, is God a Republican or Democrat, how would you answer? If I were to take that question and go outside of this morning, and I were to ask those that are non-churched in the Bible Belt in Texas, is God Republican or Democrat, what would our culture and what would uh, those in our community typically say? I think in many regards, as you guys are answering, yeah, I think in many regards, it sure seems like in the state of Texas, in the Bible Belt, it sure sounds like God is Republican, all right? I'm going to try to remove that myth and try to come back at this issue of politics from a more of a biblical manner. But I think in many regards, there's a lot of things going on in our culture, in our day and time. And I want to, in a sense, kind of move back and try to answer, how do we move into the political realm in a way that's appropriate, in a way that's biblical? I'm going to argue to you guys this morning that God is neither Republican nor Democrat, okay? And specifically that God is self-affiliated, all right? Uh, He has no party, okay? He has no party. He has no side. Uh, Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is uh, preparing before the uh, Battle of Jericho, and and in his preparations, a a man appears to him with a sword. Joshua approaches the man and and asks him, says this, Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua apparently is going to interact here potentially with a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. Christ coming pre-incarnate, coming before he came fully in the form and nature of man. He comes and he appears and he says, that I'm not for either side here, but I am actually the captain of the Lord of hosts. The Lord's army, I am in control, I am, I am over it, and in many ways I am not on either side. I think Joshua chapter 5 is really, really interesting because in Old Testament politics and society kind of talk deal, what you have in the Old Testament is God's sovereign and unique election of the nation of Israel. And here is the nation of Israel going up against pagan kingdoms, and here you have, in a sense, the Lord of hosts saying, I'm not for either side. You have a really interesting comment here. And, and I think what I want you guys to begin to see as we kind of begin this morning is to say that as we look at politics, as we look at the issues of social justice, God is not for either side, okay? God is not, not he's neither Republican nor he's Democrat. In fact, not does he not have a party or side, he, he's not into bipartisanship, okay? He's not into compromising his agenda to get agreement, all right? Daniel chapter 2, let the name of God be blessed forever. He removes kings and established kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. The Old Testament will say that, in a sense, he moves the heart of kings like moving channels of water. 
That God is sovereign and that He has control over all the nations. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, uh, God will speak of the king that He's installed over Zion and in Zion. And that king will be a king over all of the nations. And that king will break all the nations like breaking earthenware or pottery. That God is sovereign over all kings and over all nations. And in the sense that he's not looking for agreement, he's not looking for bipartisanship, compromise to get his agenda forward, but he is sovereign over all kings. In fact, he's in control of all kingdoms in a sense. And because of that, what I want you guys to see, one of the things I want to hit with you guys is, a, is an assumption I think a lot of us have in Bible Belt America. That if he's sovereign over all kingdoms, if he's sovereign over all kings, but he does not have a party or a side, I think many of us believe that in a sense that America is a Christian nation. And for many of us, our great hope sociologically is this, that America will become more of a Christian nation or in a sense return back to whatever Christian roots it might have had. Let me argue to you guys this morning that in a sense, God has not uniquely elected or chosen America. Okay? In many regards, we have a lot of blessings and a lot of freedoms that sure as heck seem like to be the, the kindness of God himself. But I don't think in any, any, any kind of way that God has chosen America or that, in a sense, our great hope sociologically is that we would become a Christian nation. All right? And here's why. John chapter 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That, In a sense, to identify America as God's kingdom is a misidentification of the kingdom of God. And if that's a misidentification of the kingdom of God, it begins to frame your expectations and your agenda for a secular nation. Okay, And kind of as we move through there, I want, what I want you guys to see is that although God does not have a side, nor a party, nor a chosen kingdom or nation, He sure as heck though has an agenda, and He has values for the nations and for governments throughout our world. And in a sense, though He doesn't have a party, He does have a platform agenda. So what is that? What is God's standards for the nations? What is God hoping or expecting of governments throughout our world? Primarily, and beginning with, I want to hit Psalm chapter 82, verses 1 to 4. What is it that God expects from the nations? This is what He expects. God takes His stand in the midst of the rulers, amidst the rulers of the nations, and this is what He says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and the needy. That even back to Genesis, uh, early parts of Genesis, where you see the first signs of government, uh, of capital punishment, and, and God's commands and, and instructions to Noah as the generation that would come after the flood. One of the things you begin to see throughout the Old Testament is that one of the things that God expects of the nations and expects of governments is that they would protect the weak and those that have no voice. That they would be a protector of the peoples in many regards. But it's not just that they are to protect the weak and the needy, but they are also to promote righteousness and to punish evil. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 10 to 11. We find this, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. That within a nation, within a society, when righteousness is promoted, that nation will go well, uh, quality of life will be better. And because of that value, this is what God has set up governments to do. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We'll look a little bit later this morning at Romans chapter 13, but in Romans 13, Paul will speak of the government as the minister of God to, to promote righteousness and to punish evil. In many regards, what is government meant to do? What is God's expectations of nations and governments? It's this. One, to protect the poor, the needy, and the afflicted, those that have no voice. And the second is to promote righteousness and to punish evil. That is its function, that is its role, that is what God expects of it in the nations and in the world today. 
And it was true in the Old Testament, and it's become true today in the New Testament. But as nations do that, and as nations walk that out, God is not in a unique way partnering or choosing or electing a certain kind of nation. America is not, in a sense, God's chosen, beloved nation. And so when 9-11 happens, that's not God's, uh, in a sense, punishment of his nation, okay? In many regards, I want to, in a sense, loosen your expectations and your identification of where God's kingdom is and how it's moving. It's not moving through unique nations, in which case that he's chosen, okay? And because of that, he does not have a party, but he does have expectations for nations and for governments. So because of that, in many regards, I want to say, I'm kind of, kind of move back here and say, I think because of those values that were not upheld, I think what we had in America was an American revolution. Why? Because human rights were not being taken care of in an appropriate manner. And so in the American Revolution, what you had was a movement of men and women saying, hey, my rights are not being protected. And so they revolted. And in the revolt, what they did was a couple things. They set up an American democracy that I think had two purposes to it. Two different things that I think an American democracy in a constitution and the writers who wrote it were trying to communicate theologically as a nation was constructed. First of all was this, that there is human dignity. That all humans have a dignity and all have unalienable rights. So all should be involved and represented in government. But the second thing that you see in a democracy, unlike other sets and forms of government, is this. Not just that all people have dignity, and there's a sense of human dignity, but there's also a confidence or an assumption and a belief in human depravity. Okay? So in a democracy, you have people ruling the people, but in that form of government, you have checks and balances. Why? Because former governments show that when you have all power in one individual, you're going to have more than likely a situation in which most people's rights may or may not later be neglected. And so they set up a form of government that protected human rights and because in the way that they constructed it, they believed also that humans were depraved and that if you put all power in one individual and person, you're going to have, for sure, at some point, corruption, cheating, and the neglect of those that had no voice and had no ability to protect themselves. And so as the American democracy was created, what you had is, in a sense, that going on. And yet I want to argue to you guys this morning that uh, democracy is limited. I think in many regards we have a great form of government, but even that form of government is limited in many of its abilities and many of its responsibilities. Uh, Specifically, I want to argue to you guys this morning that a democracy or any human form of government has legitimate authority, but it has limited authority. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes this, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, but, it, but for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. Again, Paul will say in Romans chapter 13 that government is, in a sense, the minister of God. It is a human institution that God has ordained, and in His sovereignty, is exercising His sovereignty in such a kind of way that human authority, human government, has been granted His ability to rule on His behalf. All right, so human governments as wise, as corrupt, as righteous, as evil as they may be, in some sense are and still functioning as the minister of God. Okay, So as you look at Romans chapter 13, what's stunning about Romans 13? What's stunning about Romans 13 is that Paul is writing to Romans who are under Roman rule, and Paul is about a few years later going to be crucified and killed by Roman government that he was also imprisoned by. What I want you guys to see is that even in Romans 13, as Paul speaks about human government, what, what you see is that it has legitimate authority, and its authority is not conditioned on whether you respect it or whether you like it. <laughs> they, he's called to still obey. In fact, it's not just whether you respect it and obey it, but also whether you would agree or not, you are still called to submit to it. So you and I live in a nation that has said the drinking age is 21. 
So whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, you live in a, law, in a land in which the law of the land says, until you're 21, don't drink. So whether you think the deal is significant, whether you agree with it or not, you're called to submit to it. You're also called to pay taxes to this government. In fact, you're also called to submit whether you think it's a minor or a major issue. So, like we talked about even last week, the moment that you're driving on the highway, the cop comes along and you see the cop, you slow down. And the moment the cop's gone, you speed up, right? Speed limits are, for many of us, suggestions, right? Uh, they're not actually rules or laws. But whether it's minor or major, you and I are called to submit to this government. And yet... You and I are not called to submit to it unconditionally, right? If you look through the book of Acts, we find that human government is legitimate, but it is limited. And that if human government would ever cross or move in opposition to the commands and the decrees of God, then humans and Christians are, are called to resist that government. That their obedience and their willingness to subject and follow is not unconditional, but is conditional as to whether it will disobey or cross in contrast to commands of God. In fact, that's why I think it's appropriate that church and state separate. All right. I think it's appropriate that church and state are separate. This is not a normal Sunday morning, but this is kind of an extra two cents. Here you go. That I think as, as every time you look historically backwards through, through the ages and through the centuries, every single time church and state got wedded together, big things and bad things happened. All right? um, in fact, I think some of your worst historical moments throughout the world has been not only injustices for the church, but also injustices for states and for nations has been when church and state got wedded together and they were ruling together. In fact, that's why I ran across this quote and really liked it this morning. One way of losing the power of resistance is to have the state take it away. Another is to surrender it willingly in the rush to become part of the very state against which the religion should ideally serve as a bulwark. The Inquisition only became possible when church and state merged their authorities, and neither was available to stand against the other. The church, by becoming the state, can surrender the possibility of acting as an intermediary, a protector of the people of God. It ceased to be able to preach resistance. One might even say that in its grasping for power, the institutional church gave up the right to die for its beliefs in exchange for the right to kill for its beliefs. Let me argue to you guys, as we kind of look at a democracy and look at the form of government that we are currently living in and under, I think it is a healthy for church and state to be separate. In fact, I think it's better for both. That when church and state are merged together, it is worse for both the church and for the state. Because they need to have separate spheres so that they could contradict and resist one another. And I think that sets up for a healthiness. But historically, as you look through the nations and as you look through his ages and time, what you see is whenever those two, either government crushes religion or religion, in a sense, usurps and controls government, those two situations always lead to great injustice either way. And I think some of the church's darkest hours have been when they assumed and had the reins of government authority. And so I think church and state separate is good. I would even argue in some regards... A lot of what we've felt in the past that we were a Christian nation, a lot of things we've argued for uh, that should be in schools or in law or different things, it's difficult because for a secular nation, they cannot provide favoritism to one religion or the other. They have to create an environment for equal access and for freedom of all religions. And so one of the things that thinks is helpful as we kind of walk through this on politics is that church and states should be separate. Our goal may not necessarily be that America should be a Christian nation and that the church should take over government, Okay. And at the same time, we don't want government taking over the church and government taking over all religious spheres and activities of society. We want those two to have separation because those two in separation are better for both. We want those two operating in different places. And so, not just that they would operate in different places, but even as you look at a work like Augustine's City of God, Augustine will write back in that day that the City of God was not the same as the City of Man because when the City of Man gets identified with the City of God, when a threat comes to a state or to a nation, it sure sounds like a threat to God. 
And yet, again, the idea being that God is over nations, that He is, in a sense, outside of politics, and that a threat to a human city is not a threat to the city and the purpose and the plan of God. But God is moving and working sovereignly through all of that, moving history to a climax in which His kingdom will return. And His kingdom will rule over all nations and over all kings, and we'll get there here in a minute. But in a sense, then, I want to argue to you guys, as you look at a democracy, that in many regards it is a check and balance because it realizes that humans are depraved and that if you put all power in one individual, that that one individual could usurp and oppress other groups. I want to also argue you guys this morning that one of the flaws in democracy is that a majority is just as able to oppress another group as one single evil king. All right. In fact, sometimes they're even more able. A liberal theologian named Anibor wrote this, that at the end of his life he, he believed and he had helped kind of lead and trumpet and champion the liberal movement that we'll talk about here a little bit later that believed that, in a sense, it kind of rechanged and redefined Christianity where Christianity was a God without wrath, letting man without sin into a kingdom without judgment to a Christ without a cross. That liberalism that, that really hit the 20th century really changed the way that you and I did church, changed the way that you and I believed. But it also changed, in many regards, the way that the church thought it should be functioning in society. But here's what he said at the end of his life. He said, while individuals were occasionally capable of altruism or virtue or self-transcendence, human groups never willingly subordinated their interests to the interests of others. Morality was for individuals. There was no evidence that human groups ever overcame the power of self-interest and collective egotism that sustained their existence. And here's the point. That if, in a sense, democracy was a check of balances preventing one evil king from gaining power and oppressing another minority, democracy is not necessarily a safeguard from that either. That in democracy, when you have a majority, a majority does not always make right. Might does not always make right. Majority does not always ensure morality. Sometimes a majority is actually even stronger ability as it's gathered together to oppress a lesser and more minor group. So one of the things I want to argue to you guys is we look at a world in which right now there's all kinds of social injustices. I think you and I live in a day and time in which you and I are becoming more and more aware and more and more privy to all that's going on. I got some statistics this week from the International Justice Mission in terms of social justice issues that are going on. From sex trafficking, where we have 800,000 children this year being forced into sex trafficking for an annual profit of $32 billion, to human rights violations all throughout Asia and Europe, to the abortion issue both in China and in America, to even the issue of forced slavery. 20 million people this year in forced slavery in Southeast Asia, and they were bought for a total cost of $90 per person. All right. So throughout our day and time, there's all kinds of social justice issues going on. And I think you and I are now living in a generation that we are more and more aware of those things. And in fact, the church and secular society more and more is not just aware of those, but they're mobilizing and they're moving to respond to those issues. So nowadays you have Bono speaking about politics, you have Brad, Brad and Angela Jolie speaking and adopting all kinds of babies, and you have megachurch pastors talking about healthcare reform. Okay, You have all kinds of society movements addressing politics and addressing social justice because we are all aware a generation not too long ago had the church bunkered in its isolated worlds, its own bookstores, its own churches, its own schools, its own gyms. But now the church also has stepped back into the world, has re-engaged. And the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we re-engage? There's all kinds of issues and there's all kinds of problems out there. I want to submit that I don't think government is the end-all, be-all solution. And one of the reasons why I think that is because any form of government is at some point limited in its ability to renew and transform and move beyond human depravity. (laughs) 
whether it's an one evil king who has absolute power and can corrupt it, or a majority that can, in self-interest, oppress another group in their interests, that any form of government has some inbuilt issues with it, that it is not the solution to any social justice issue. It is part of the solution, and it can create, and it's been called to by God as standards of expectation to protect the weak, to promote righteousness, to punish evil, but it is not the ultimate solution, okay? Second of all, I think, and many of us, we have a value to see culture restored, culture transformed, but scriptures are clear that, that in a sense, where's our culture going? It's going from bad to worse, okay? That our goal and our hope that as we engage cultures, that we could see some of it transformed in little pockets and in little moments and in little spheres of influence that you and I have and that our church has, but by and large, where is culture moving internationally? Bad to worse. In fact, the scriptures are clear, Second Timothy, First Timothy, that evil times are coming, and the only way that that's going to ultimately be changed is by Jesus Christ. The only way those solutions will ever come to the human heart is when Jesus Christ returns and he sets up his own kingdom. But until that day, how do you and I live? And so if no form of government is perfect, and if you and I are still at our, at our base, still struggling with self-interest, and if by the large culture is moving in a negative direction, how in the world do you and I respond to problems that are gigantic? How do we respond to sex trafficking? How do we respond to AIDS? How do we respond to abortion? Historically speaking, I think the church has, in a sense, punted on those. <laughs> they've either remained silent or they've disengaged and isolated from society. Now the church is finally moving back in, and I want to argue that maybe they're not moving back in in the right way. I want to give you guys a little historical context, though, for where has the church been. In the 20th century, a, a, a movement took off known as liberalism. Liberalism believed, in a sense, in a very different view of your Bible, and a very different view of God and of Christ and of the cross and of man than, you and I, than you've heard every Sunday morning here. Specifically, liberalism believed as it hit most of your mainline denominations and churches that, in a sense, they were wanted to redefine and reintroduce a Christianity that had a God who had no wrath to a, for a man that was entering a kingdom that had no judgment because man was not that sinful, and therefore Christ did not need to die. It was a very different view, biblically speaking, of the truths of God. All right, And what they did in the 20th century was they were horrible with their Bible, but they were gigantic champions of social justice. They were huge, and they were all over the social justice issue. And where many of the conservative Christian churches, in a sense, backed away, they went charging full-scale forward with passion and with ambition and with zeal in a way that was incredibly proper. But the challenge was they were engaging in the right activity, but they didn't have the right message. In fact, the conservative Christian church in that decade, in that century specifically, seeing them champion, seeing them forward, actually forsake it because they were afraid of the association and jumping in and partnering in the same activities. It's a little bit like this issue. If you were here this morning, as I look out, there's only one person with an orange shirt. And maybe because Austin, or University of Texas, was here this weekend in baseball. But if you were to walk into this town and wear an orange shirt, I typically don't do it very often because I'm afraid someone may think I'm from the University of Texas, right? Possible assumption, but kind of faulty, right? Just because I wear an orange shirt does not say and does not lead to the affiliation I would have with the college, right? But in the 20th century, what was happening for the conservative Christian church was they thought, if I stepped in and if I identified myself in social justice, that I am therefore, by association with liberals, stepping away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So historically speaking, that was one of the things that was going on, such that the church, in a sense, forsook and neglected the call to social justice that they had. James chapter 1, verse 20, 27, Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unfortunately, the conservative Christian church had been great at abstaining or keeping themselves unstained from the world, but they had been so unstained, they had so isolated that they had also forsaken their call to engage the needs of the world. 
All right, and so one of the other things you had going on in that period of time was some theological things going on, specifically this, that many had a view of eschatology. Like I said to you, the idea of coming that, hey, here's where our culture's going. Our culture's going from bad to worse, and ultimately we can reverse it in little pockets, but ultimately it's like, in a sense, polishing the furniture on the Titanic, all right? In a sense, if this whole thing is going down, and if it's not going to be completely fixed until Christ returns, some have said, then why even bother with social justice? What is the, the opportunity that you have, and why engage in something that ultimately you can't fix? Again, that's not a proper uh, excuse to, not, to neglect the call that we've all been given as a church. Another thing that happened was the idea that, hey, there was such an emphasis in that century on individual conversion to the neglect of social justice. And so the idea was, why go build a well when, in a sense, some would say and some would argue way too extremely, you're just making earth a better place for some people to go to hell. <laughs> Again, that, that emphasis caused the conservative Christian church to neglect the call that they should have had and that they had forsaken. And so what you have happening in our generation, I would argue, a lot of Christian writers, a lot of Christian authors, a lot of even secular uh, artists and musicians and leaders that are re-engaging in social justice appropriately and thankfully. But I want to argue and I want to ask this morning, are they re-engaging in a manner that's uh, zealous but, but biblical and wise? I, I, I'm kind of reading a lot of stuff you guys read, and one of the things I'm noticing in a lot of the young authors that you guys like to read is they are not necessarily conversant with historical backgrounds and where the church has been historically. And so I'm reading book after book of men and women who are zealous about social justice because they've seen that the church has neglected it. But in their pursuit of it, I think they're pursuing it in a manner that's a little bit of an overcorrection that's going to eventually lead us down to the path of some different errors. Let me give, let me give you guys kind of an example. Specifically what I mean is, if you guys were to follow me to, to the golf driving range, you'd see my golf swing, which it's not wonderful, all right? Um, and if I'm having a good day, I'm hitting the ball pretty well. I, I got footwork in place. I got hands right. My back swing look, looking good. But somehow, somewhere as I come in and I hit the ball, if I'm having a good day, I consistently slice, all right? The ball goes straight, and then at some point, it just begins to curve right. And now, knowing a little bit about golf and enough to be dangerous, I can uh, change and adjust a few things in my swing to get the ball to go straight. But by doing that, what I'm doing is adjusting and changing some of the things that I was doing correctly to fix one thing that I was doing wrongly. And the result is, for about five minutes, I'll hit the ball straight. But for the next hour, instead of going to the right, I then start going to the left. And my point is, I think some of the guys that you guys are reading, some of the things that are, and some of the champions right now for social justice are, are, are so zealous and they're jumping into it in such a manner that I think in their passion, and I'd argue in their youthfulness, they're going about it in a manner that's going to get us into trouble down the road. And specifically, what do I mean? Um, I, you know, I, I kind of read uh, this week a book. I'm not going to name it to you guys, but uh, the writer says this. I learned learn more about God from the tears of the homeless mothers than any systematic theology ever taught me. I gave up Christianity to, in order to follow Jesus. All right, I, I'm reading stuff like that, and I'm continuing to read it from a lot of young authors that I want to completely redefine Christianity and completely redefine the way we do church. And as one that is trying to do church, um, and one that is limited in my gifts, one that is limited in my time, let me argue and submit to you, I know that we don't do everything perfect. <laughs> and if you come here and you're here long enough, you're going to see some of the weaknesses of the way that we, specifically as Grace Bible, do church. And I would argue, cons- uh, historically speaking, for sure, I think social justice is something that the Bible church, the conservative uh, theological churches have forsaken. And I think it's something we need to give renewed attention to. But in doing it, we need to not forsake the other calls that we've also been given. 
I'm reading books and I'm hearing from uh, a lot of people these days that in a sense, this is what real Christianity looks like. It's doing a homeless stint. It's braiding your hair and it's wearing toms. All right. Y'all are laughing because you've heard it. All right. So there's this new view of Christianity and it's being championed by those that are charismatic, that are young and they're fed up with the institutional church that it's failing, they feel like. And I'd argue they're on to something that we don't do right or don't do well. We don't do social justice well. We're trying and we're getting better at it. But in order to correct it, let me assume and let me say this, that some of those men and women who are championing that are not realizing that the church has been called to a whole set of tasks and functions. So, for example, the parachurch organizations that a lot of you guys maybe serve in or or know of are great at doing certain things because they have a narrow focus and a narrow audience and they can do that phenomenal. Because you and I live in a day and time in which we so believe in expertise specialization that they're specialists in that. And if you compare them to the church, we are crummy at it. <laughs> Why? Because for the church, we don't have the luxury of narrowing our task and narrowing our audience. Because for the church, we've been called holistically to equip, to disciple, to evangelize, and to do social justice. All right? A lot of organizations and a lot of authors these days just want to pursue social justice and they want to forget about everything else. In fact, not only do they want to forget about the other calls of the church, but I think historically they're not that conversant and they don't realize some of the reasons we got to where we got, and they're making mistakes that the church has already made historically, but they're not conversant with history, and in their youth and in their zeal, they're not going about it in a manner that brings wisdom and brings balance. So one of the things I want to argue to you guys, especially those of y'all who are wanting to do social justice, who are passionate about it, let me say, hey, in the midst of your engagement with it, engage it with wisdom, all right? Engage it with balance. Uh, We had an elder that used to say that wisdom is knowing the relative importance of things, okay? I think the call to the poor, the call to, the, to those that are afflicted, the call to those that have no voice is absolutely important. But in our pursuit of it, we also can't abandon those things that maybe we are doing well right now. And those things that God has also called us to do in terms of community, fellowship, prayer, Bible study, those things that some would say is institutional, old, crummy, and broken. <laughs> I'd argue those are some things that we do really, really well. And that if you want to pursue social justice, you've got to hold those things for the church. You've got to hold them all together because we have to do all of it. And I'd argue if you have certain passions and gifts, man, jump into it and be a part of it. But as you criticize and as you look at the church, realize that, hey, we are doing the best we can. And that ultimately, we're called to a whole bunch of different tasks and to a whole bunch of different audiences. Certain things that certain authors and certain organizations don't necessarily have to do. And so because of that, because of the great issues I think we have to face because of the fact that government is failing, because of the fact that sometimes the church isn't perfect, how do you and I respond? Where do you and I go? Ultimately, I'd say that one of the first things we do is we pray for our political leaders, okay? Where do we go from here this morning? If government's not the perfect solution, but it is part of the solution, I'd argue that let's be the kind of people and the kind of church that's prayerful for our political leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Uh, over spring break, Marcy and I were in San Diego, and it occurred during the time that uh, the health care bill got passed. Um, and so we were sitting there in our hotel room and, and flipping channels and bouncing back from different uh, news organizations that have different political leanings. And one of the things that really kind of struck me was how... Uh, it's really different what you hear from the media and from the different slants, all right? There, there's very few that are going to give stand in the middle and give you a balanced perspective on some things. Second of all, I, I thought in the midst of us for, as a church and for a lot of things I hear in terms of criticism and different things, I, I feel like we are great at criticizing government. We are very poor at praying for government. 
And so one of the things I want to challenge us, even as a church and even as a college community, is that we will be the kind of people that begin now, whether we agree with the political party in charge, whether we agree with the political party that's in the Oval Office or in Congress that has a majority or not, that we will be the kind of people that would be as prayerful as we might be sometimes complaining. Second thing I think we ought to be about is obeying them, that it is our responsibility individually and as a church to be not just prayerful and honoring towards them, but also uh, submissive and in subjection to them and the things that they don't disregard uh, the commands of God. The third thing I'd say is that we would be the kind of people that would mobilize and engage and we'd be, we'd be the kind of people that would vote, that would take part in the civic realm of our life. But how do we do that? How do we vote? All right, let me give you guys a couple principles which will not lead to political party affirmations, okay? Uh, first of all, let me encourage you guys, um, vote for character and not charisma. All right, vote for issues and not personality. I think one of the things I see, especially with youth and especially uh, for college, especially for the, the people you guys like to listen to, whether that's theologically or um, politically, is that sometimes really what's attractive is personality. But sometimes when you get to the bottom of it, what's the substance and what are the issues? Um, so I want you guys to think through the issues. And, and as you think through the issues, the reality for most of us in America is we vote on the basis of our pocketbook. All right. I would argue for many of us, the reason we vote, and for many in our country, that the, the first felt motive for the way they vote is their pocketbook. I'd argue if that God's standards and his expectations for the nations are about protecting the poor, about promoting righteousness and punishing evil, and if, in a sense, righteousness makes a country's quality of life even better, then the way that you ought to vote on the issues is the issues that are more with respect to the, na- the standards and the expectations that God has for the nations, meaning this. We don't vote primarily based off of fiscal policy, okay? Fiscal policy is not the number one driving determiner of how you and I cast a vote. I'd argue that there's issues that are more uh, near the heart of God about voting, about who you would vote for than fiscal policy, all right? So particularly, I'd argue, hey, who who does well? Who is promoting and um, who is protecting the rights of those that don't have a voice? Who does that well? I'd argue that on those basis of those issues from poor to abortion to those kinds of issues of those that are protecting those that don't have a voice, that is, in a sense for me, more of a primary uh, determiner of how I vote than fiscal policy, okay? Fiscal policy is more where I feel it, but I think the issues of of righteousness in a nation and the issues of morality are more um, important to the heart of God for how you and I engage in the political process. Fourth thing I'd say is that we would be the kind of people that would do social justice, all right? That we would re-engage in it, that we would re-engage with wisdom and with humility, realizing that there are certain things the church has done well so that we are not completely redefining and chucking out all that the church has done or has done in the past to pursue something they haven't been doing well, all right? So that we would re-engage but also maintain the multiple set of priorities that the church has with humility, realizing that no church is perfect, no leader is perfect, and that we are serving as faithfully as we can. The last thing I'd say is that in the midst of engaging in the present politically and sociologically, that we would also, though, put hope in the present. In the midst of an engagement in the present, we would still put our hope in the future because the ultimate solution is coming in the future. What's the best form of government? The best form of government is a monarchy where the king is absolutely righteous and judges and leads and governs with absolute wisdom. That is a government that you will not find, but a government that will be coming in the future. And so our hope is in that day. And yet, even though our hope is in that day and that that is the ultimate solution, it does not mean that we don't engage the present. You and I have the opportunity and the responsibility to be the kind of influencers in our spheres that we are a part of. So maybe that's really small. Maybe that's in a classroom. Maybe that is one day in an industry. Maybe that is one day for you guys politically. 
Maybe for you guys, one day that's in media, but whatever sphere that you'd step into, we would be the kind of people looking to see righteousness reestablished, looking to see the reign of God established and seen moving through you and I, whether individually or as a community and as a church. And so we engage the present. And yet even as we engage the present and look to make a difference, we still have the reality of a hope to come because ultimately even as we engage the present, we're going to see temporary, small, sometimes big movements and reversals of what and the ways that society is moving. But even in that, ultimately, our hope is in a day to come and when God will finally restore and renew everything. A day is coming when he will return and he will establish a kingdom. And under that kingdom, all nations will bend the knee to him. And he will rule with perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And the question is, will we wait on that kingdom or not? (laughs) Will we delight in that kingdom or not? And even as we wait, will we wait with wisdom? And will we wait having isolated ourselves from the culture today? Or will we wait having remained unstained but still engaged in our cultural affairs and in the things that you and I have been called to. One of the things I want you guys to see as we continue to walk through the series again is that your faith, your belief in God, your walk with God is not just about Sunday morning. It's not just about a classroom setting and how you study. It has to do with that, but it also has to do with the way that you engage civics, the way that you engage politics, the way that you engage in a business and a career, the way that you raise a family, the way that you get married, that your faith is, is in a sense, uh, inclusive of all of your life. And in a sense, your faith is a beginning point that, that spreads out and hits every arena of your life and every part of the things that you'll be called to one day. Right now, you guys are just students, but a day will come that you're an employee. A day will come that you are a mother. A day will come that you are a wife, a husband, a father. And so how are you going to engage those roles in a way that's inclusive of your faith? How will you live that out in a way that looks unique and different? And that's kind of our hope for you guys. And again, for you parents and for all you guys that are here, we realize a day is coming when you will leave us. <laughs> um, you've left your parents already, all right? But a day will come, hopefully, uh, you will leave us. Um, and when that day comes, what we want you guys to have is a vision for what it looks like for your life to hit a career, what it looks like for you guys to raise a family, and, and that your faith would impact all those different arenas. So let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we open your word and we wrestle with it and we hit a topic that for many of us, listening to radio, listening to TV, standing at a water cooler, um, even within family, is a uh, hot button. And it is an issue that will polarize families. It is an issue that creates not just um, colorful debate, but it creates and it generates uh, incredible emotion. And Father, I pray that you would allow us as we kind of walk through and walk away from this morning, that you would give us wisdom and that you would allow us to digest some of this and that you would begin to think and begin to frame for us, how do we move civically? Um, how do we respond to the great needs sociologically today and the great injustices that are out there? How do we not remain isolated thinking we can't make a difference, but how do we engage with wisdom and with hope uh, even of a day to come? Father, I pray that as we walk out of here, Lord, that you would give us a sense this morning of what that looks like, uh, that you would give us uh, a kind of perspective that would be heavenly minded, but we would still be earthly good. That we would weigh and we would balance the present with the future. That we weigh and balance the spiritual with the practical and the physical. That you would give us the kind of wisdom to think through those in a biblical manner. And that we would be the kind of men and women that would live and engage the present with balance and with wisdom, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, thank you guys for coming this morning. Let me kind of give you guys one last little tidbit. Uh, one of the spots I think our church does really well at this I meant to mention this even in the sermon, but uh, for you guys who may not know about it, we have a ministry called Youth Impact. Um, even just yesterday, they had a big fundraiser breakfast, a pancake breakfast, and they are an inner city ministry that's reaching into parts of Bryan and College Station to those, in a sense, who, who have greater needs, to those that don't have a voice, and reaching out not just in practical ways, but also reaching out with the love of Christ 
teaching Bible, I feel like they do a phenomenal job of uniting the spiritual and the practical in a really winsome manner. So for you guys, as you kind of wrap up the semester and as you guys think about next year, I'd encourage you guys, if you have a heart for social justice, that's one spot our church is doing it, engaging college students that I think is a phenomenal, really transformative spot in our town that I'd love for you guys to consider and pray through. So you guys have a great time and a great uh, afternoon, and we'll see you guys next week.